Amen. Um, so interesting that when Nathan uh, asked me a few weeks ago to preach, I didn't know that was going to be a part of today. Um, he, um, when he asked me to preach, uh, we've got a lot going on in our lives, and I, and I said, you know what, I can do it. I'll probably just have to use something I've done before, but of course, the Lord has other plans, and so uh, just impressed on my heart this passage, which is pretty much my favorite passage in the Bible. Uh, it's Second Chronicles chapter 20, and I can't remember the first time I heard it. It's been years and years and years, but uh, it's just an amazing passage, and I'm thankful that the Lord put it on my heart to talk about it. The passage is about a king named Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat was a king of Judah. So if you're not really familiar, uh, you probably are at least a little familiar with the history of God's people, the, the people of Israel. You know about King David. You know about his son, Solomon, the wise king. You may or may not know that after Solomon, though, the, the, the kingdom split. And there was a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom, the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah. And Jehoshaphat, so Jehoshaphat was the king of Judah. And so the thing about kings during this time is we have an up and down kind of roller coaster between some kings who would follow God and some kings who would not follow God and, and, and lead the people uh, toward him. And so Jehoshaphat was one of these good kings. And in Second Chronicles 17, 6, it says this, it says, his heart was courageous in the ways of the Lord. And that just, that's just striking, isn't it? Like... For all of us, don't we want that to be said about us? Our hearts are courageous in the ways of the Lord. And uh, it makes me think of a book by John Piper. Um, Some of you may have read it or at least heard of it. It's called Don't Waste Your Life. And uh, I want to read you a quote from that. And it says, We waste our lives when we do not pray and think and dream and plan and work toward magnifying, magnifying God in all spheres of life. God created us for this, to live our lives in a way that makes him look more like the greatness and the beauty and the infinite worth that he really is. The greatest cause in the world is joyfully rescuing people from hell, meeting their earthly needs, making them glad in God, and doing it with a kind, serious pleasure that makes Christ look like the pleasure, like the treasure he is. Um, and the thing is about this life is this life can be hard. This life of Christ and this uh, a not wasted life can be a challenge. And uh, one of the things uh, that I had the great privilege of doing was attending Evangelical Christian School in Memphis. And I was, I was only there my junior and senior year of high school, but my senior year we had this uh, great teacher uh, in the English and it was an AP English class, and none of us did very well on the AP exam because I don't think we read any of the, te- the books that the world would say we were supposed to read. Instead, we spent all our time reading C.S. Lewis and G.K. Chesterton and people like this. And I remember um, we studied the, the stories of King Arthur. And about that time, back in 1995, that's when I graduated from high school, a long time ago, uh, a movie came out called First Night. And I think it's sort of a cringy movie. I probably would not like it if I watched it again today. But what I remember a scene from that movie. Uh, and it's a, a time when the knights are around the round table and they're discussing whether to make a compromise. So an enemy uh, had come to them and said, I'm going to attack you or we can make this compromise. And several of the knights are saying, you know, it's worth it. Let's make this compromise. Peace is important. 
And King Arthur in that movie, and I've never forgotten this quote, he says, there's a peace only to be found on the other side of war. And if that war should come, I will fight it. And it's this decision to fight or compromise, to live on purpose for God or to waste our lives that I want to focus on this morning. And so as we do that, let's look at 2 Chronicles chapter 20. And as I read this, I'm going to be skipping a few verses here and there just to to shorten it a little bit. Um, But we will start in verse 1. So 2 Chronicles chapter 20, I think what I'm going to read will be on the screen. It says, After this, the Moabites, the Ammonites, and with them some of the Mennonites came against Jehoshaphat for battle. Some men came and told Jehoshaphat, A great multitude is coming against you from Edom, from beyond the sea. Then Jehoshaphat was afraid. And set his face to seek the Lord, and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. And Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord. From all the cities of Judah they came to seek the Lord. And Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court and said, O Lord God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might, so that none is able to withstand you. Did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? And they have lived in it and have built for you in it a sanctuary for your name, saying, if disaster comes upon us, the sword, judgment, or pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this house and before you, for your name is in this house, and cry out to you in our affliction, and you will hear and save." And now behold, the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom you would not let Israel invade when they came from the land of Egypt, and whom they avoided and did not destroy, behold, they reward us by coming to drive us out of your possession, which you have given us to inherit. O our God, will you not execute judgment on them? For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Thus, and then later on, God says to them through a prophet, starting in verse 15, he says, Thus says the Lord to you, do not be afraid, do not be dismayed at this great horde, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow, go down against them. You will not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm, hold your position, and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. O Judah and Jerusalem, do not be afraid. Do not be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, and the Lord will be with you. And they rose early in the morning and went into the wilderness of Tekoa, and they went out. Jehoshaphat, when they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, Judah, and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God, and you will be established. Believe his prophets, and you will succeed. And when he had taken counsel with the people, he appointed those who were to sing to the Lord and praise him in holy attire as they went before the army and said, Give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. And when they began to sing and praise, the Lord set an ambush against the men of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who had come against Judah so that they were routed. This is the word of the Lord. You pray with me. Father, we thank you for this story. We thank you for your word. 
We ask that you would send your spirit to give us understanding, to give me words, that you may be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. So two things that I want to talk to you about today. Number one is that we will be attacked. And number two is how we will fight. So first of all, we will be attacked. So if you go back to the beginning, verse 1 of chapter 20, it says, after this. So of course, we want to go back and see what is this happening after And so, like we said, Jehoshaphat was a good king, courageous in the ways of the Lord. But we see in chapter 18 of 2 Chronicles that he had lost his way a little bit. He makes an alliance with the king of Israel, a king who was not following God, a king who was wicked. And he makes this alliance with Israel and goes and fights a battle uh, and helps Israel. And it's a very interesting story. I, I highly encourage you going back to read chapter 18. But then in chapter 19... A prophet of God says to Jehoshaphat, basically, what were you doing? Making this alliance, aligning yourself with this one who is against God. And what's interesting is the way Jehoshaphat responds. He repents. But not only does he repent, he goes all throughout the country. It says he goes all throughout the country, spreading the word of God and leading his people into the ways of the Lord. The rest of the chapter, even in chapter 19, talks about how he makes political and religious reforms all to help the country become a country that follows and seeks after the Lord. So when we find this happening and this attack coming, it is right after Jehoshaphat has decided and recommitted that I'm going to be the kind of king that leads this people toward God I'm going to be the kind of king that sets an example. I'm going to be one that brings glory and honor to the king of kings. And immediately after that, he's attacked. And this is really a, a theme all throughout the Bible. When you think about the story of Ezra, Ezra is led by God to rebuild the temple. And they go to rebuild the temple in Ezra chapter 4. And after they just barely get started and build the foundation, chapter 4, verse 4 says, The people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose. Later on, when Nehemiah was led by God to rebuild the wall around Jerusalem, The opposition was so intense that the Bible tells us that the workers building the wall had one hand working on the wall and the other hand on their weapon ready for battle. Opposition toward God's work. In Jesus' life, we we know for sure that Jesus faced opposition. Hebrews 12.3, talking about Jesus, says, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. The Bible is clear. If you're living for Christ, if you're seeking to further his kingdom, if you're seeking to not waste your life but bring glory to God, that you can expect to be attacked. I want you to notice also that in this story, Jehoshaphat is not attacked by just one army. Okay, it's three. Three separate nations come against them. And I think that's interesting because all throughout, well, for the last few centuries at least, the theologians have talked about three enemies that we face in our Christian life. The world, the flesh, and the devil. This comes from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. And it says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, 
there's the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the devil, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, there's the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So the first enemy we face is the world. So in essence, what he's talking about in the world refers to a way of thinking that is focused entirely on self. It's a life lived chasing our own individual happiness, our own individual fulfillment. Ultimately, it's a life chasing after our own glory. The way of the world is a love of self. But the danger isn't just that competing, that this competing view of life exists. It's that those that live and see life through that lens are not satisfied simply to disagree with you. They want to discredit, dishonor, and eliminate anyone who would dispute their right to live solely for themselves. In John 15, 18 through 20, it says, If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That's why the world hates you. Remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. The great danger is that the world is not simply after beating us. They want to make us join them. That's why we are under a constant barrage of messages, advertisements, stories that are working to tune our hearts away from a love for God into a love for self. And as much as we today would think, gosh, with social media and all these movies and all these TV shows, it's so prevalent, this idea of trying to draw us out of a love for God into a love for ourselves is new. It's not new. Even in the Bible, when you see the nation of Israel taken over by Babylon, Babylon takes all the greatest Israelites, all the leaders, all the smartest, the best, the brightest, and they remove them from Israel and take them into exile into Babylon. And the reason why they did that is because their mind, in their mind, and it's a pretty smart strategy, is that if we can take them away from their way of life, away from their culture, away from their values, away from the worship of their God and immerse them in our culture, in our way of seeing life, in the worship of our gods, then we can not only defeat them, but we can assimilate them and bring them into the same way of thinking that we have. And the world that we live in, the way of thinking of not loving God, but loving self is after our hearts. That's our first enemy. The second enemy we face is the flesh. The flesh is our fallen, rebellious, sinful nature that is constantly pulling us away from exalting and honoring God. The Bible teaches us that even as followers of Christ, we still struggle and contend with our sin nature. Galatians 5.17 says, For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. That was written by Paul. 
Paul, who wrote the majority of, or a good, at least half of the New Testament, I think we can all agree he's probably a little bit more mature Christian than, than any of us. But he said that, but not only that, but he said this in Romans chapter 7. He says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the, the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I, that when, that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Anybody feel, it, feel a, a little bit of connection with that statement? I know I do. I know I do. The flesh is a, is a powerful enemy. Let me read you a quote from C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity. It says, No man knows how bad he is till he has tried very hard to be good. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of the German army by fighting against it, not by giving in. You find out the strength of a wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They've lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. The last enemy we face is the devil. And too often we discredit his existence. I think sometimes it's like we're afraid to even think about it. But according to the Bible, he is real. And he is active in this world. In fact, throughout the New Testament, he's referred to as the ruler of this world. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, it says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. In Ephesians, Paul exhorts us that the enemy, that the devil is so powerful, so formidable, that we need the whole armor of God to be able to stand against his schemes. And what's really dangerous about the devil is not just that he has power, he certainly has limited power, but it's that he's cunning, that he's deceptive, that he's manipulative. If you'll let me give a, one more C.S. Lewis. I told you my English teacher made me fall in love with him. The, uh, a book that he wrote is called The Screwtape Letters. I don't know if any of you are familiar with this book, but it's a, it's a book, and it's, it's certainly not a, a textbook on the doctrine of how spiritual warfare or any of that, but it, it, does, it does a great job of sort of making us think about the schemes of the devil. The book is written, it's basically a, a compilation of letters uh, of a senior demon to a junior demon on tempting uh, this one individual. And in it, it says this, it says, one of the letters, he says, the real trouble about, your, about the set your patient is living in is that it is merely Christian. They all have individual interests, of course, but the bond remains mere Christianity. 
What we want, if men become Christians at all, is to keep them in the state of mind I call Christianity and. If they must become Christians, let them at least be Christians with a difference. Substitute for the faith itself some fashion with a Christian coloring. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. Notice that phrase, keep them in a state of Christianity and. In other words, if he can't keep us from becoming Christians, then at least make sure that we're not focused on Christ. Satan wants to keep our life as a constant merry-go-round of a Christianity that's full of distractions and other interests, things that will steal our joy and keep us being effective for the kingdom of God. Jehoshaphat chose to not waste his life. He chose to stand up for God. He chose to make a difference in his people, to lead them to Christ, and he was attacked. The same will happen for us. So the next point I want to talk about is how do we fight? How do we fight? And we're going to talk about five things briefly. Go through each one briefly. Five things. One, that we recognize our weakness. Two, that we request divine intervention. Three, remember God. Four, raise a hallelujah. And five, ride out into battle. So the first thing is that we recognize our weakness. Notice what Jehoshaphat said in his prayer. We are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. This idea of saying, I'm powerless, I, don't, I can't face this alone, is so crucial to our finding victory in these battles. So crucial. And this is a hard one for me. I, I was a math major. I'm a problem solver by nature. And when something comes up, something's broken, any kind of problem comes arise, then my mind immediately goes to, all right, what now? What now? Okay, what am I going to do to fix this? What, what's, what's, the, what's the plan of attack? But what this way of thinking does is it removes the fact that there are some things that we cannot face on our own. And so one of the major things that we must do to, to have victory, and as we go out into battle, is recognize that we have no power over this in ourselves. We're powerless. 1 Corinthians 10, 12 says, Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. The second thing that we're called to do, I think we can learn from Jehoshaphat, is to request divine intervention. It says, and Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord. From all the cities of Judah they came to seek the Lord. One of the startling things about the life and ministry of Jesus is his commitment to prayer. Jesus was God. And yet his life was marked by constant state of prayer. In fact, the, the disciples, one of the main things they asked him was, Lord, teach us to pray. They saw such power in the way that he prayed. On the night of his greatest attack, when he was praying in the garden, the night of his crucifixion, where was he? In the garden, praying. Multiple times going back to his disciples and saying, why are you asleep? Watch and pray that you would not fall into temptation. As I was uh, thinking about this uh, sermon and this idea of 
seeking God in prayer, I was uh, led to a story about the Moravian Church. The Moravian Church is a church that was founded in the early 1700s. Uh, back then, I think it was in Germany, and, and I believe it would be now in the area of the country that's now the, the Czech Republic. But what we know about them is, that, is after they had started the church, they started to have some dissension amongst its members. And through a leader that God sent to them, they gained unity. But after they gained this unity, they, decided, they, they started thinking about furthering the kingdom of God. And their commitment was 24 men, 24 women decided to commit to pray every hour of every day. And so these 48 people start praying every hour, 24 hours a day, two or three of them committed to sign up for this hour and then this hour and this hour and this hour and they're praying 24-7. And you would think, well, how long can that last? Over a hundred years. The Moravian church continued this 24-7 habit of prayer. And what we know about this church is it started with about 300 members. It says in... This, in 1727, there was 300 members. In the next 65 years after they started this constant prayer, they had sent 300 missionaries into the world. So there was only 300 of them when they started praying total. And in 65 years, they sent 300 missionaries out into the world. Several of them actually sold themselves into slavery so that they could share the gospel with the slaves. This miracle, this amazing movement that is many people call the first great modern missionary movement started because of prayer. Now, for me, sometimes this is a difficult concept. You know, I want to say, well, doesn't God know what we need? Doesn't God have a purpose? And isn't God going to fulfill that purpose whether I ask him or not? Yeah, but he has designed and he has purposed that the way that he is going to work in the world will be through prayer. Why he's decided that, I don't know, but he has. He has said that he will work through prayer. I don't know if you're aware that, that our church has a similar prayer. Fortunately, not 24 hours. Nobody's up at 3 a.m. praying. We, you can, but... Our church has a, a prayer calendar that you can sign up for a day. And what we have is so that every single day of every month, someone is committed to praying for this church, the ministry of the church, praying for its leaders, praying for this city, praying for all of us. I hope you'll take part in that. That's a great way that we can go to battle and ask God to intercede and hopefully we can keep it going 100 years or more. This last quote is another John Piper from his book, Let the Nations Be Glad. He said, we cannot know what prayer is until we know that life is war. Our weakness in prayer is owing largely to our neglect of this truth. Prayer is primarily a wartime walkie-talkie for the mission of the church as it advances against the powers of darkness and unbelief. 
God has given prayer as a wartime walkie-talkie so that we can call headquarters for everything we need as the kingdom of Christ advances in the world. Prayer gives us the significance of frontline forces and gives God the glory of a limitless provider. The third thing that we do uh, to fight is to remember God. First thing is that God is all-powerful. Look where Jehoshaphat says in his prayer, O Lord God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nation. In your hand are power and might so that none is able to withstand you. None is able to withstand you. Nothing and no one can stand against the power and presence of our God. The world, the flesh, and the devil are nothing compared to the power and authority of our God. The next thing we want to remember about God is that God fights for us. God fights for us. And guys, this is the entire essence of the gospel, that God fights for us. The Bible says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Not helpless, but dead. Not able to do anything. Not only not able, but not even wanting to seek God. And yet God comes in. The Bible tells us that God sent Jesus to live a perfect life that we could not live, die a death that we could not die, and rise again so that we could have eternal life with him. The Bible says that he who knew no sin became sin so that we would become the righteousness of God. The fact that God fights for us is the very foundation by which we, our faith is built. That we can do nothing that we are powerless against all these hordes that are coming against us. But when we put our eyes on him and we accept him in faith, then we receive his victory over all of the enemies that we could ever face, over the, en the enemy of death that we were all destined to face, but now don't have to because he won the battle for us. That God fights for us. So when we choose to go to battle, when we choose to engage the enemy by living holy and publicly for the kingdom of God, we do so in full assurance and full confidence that not only is the war over, but God never even loses a battle. I love the song we sing, you can do all things, you can do all things, you can do all things, but what? Fail. You can do all things, but fail. Because he never loses a battle. And he fights for us. Last thing we have to remember is that God is with us. Look where he says, do not be afraid. Do not be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them and the Lord will be with you. He will be with you. God promises that he will never leave us. He will never forsake us. When we go into these battles, when we choose to fight, when we choose to live a life for him, we will never do it alone. He goes with us. The next thing that we do is we raise a hallelujah. This might be the best part. This might be the best part. Verses 21 and 22 tell us that when they go out to the battle, they go out to the battlefield and they don't put the strongest soldiers in the front. They put the singers in the front. And the story tells us that when they started singing, when they started praising God at that very moment, the armies 
fought against each other and defeated each other. It's amazing. Like, we couldn't write that ourselves. It's so great. Singing is to be a part of our life. It's supposed to be something that gives us power. The Bible contains over 400 references to singing. 50 direct commands to sing. In the New Testament, we're commanded not once but twice to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to one another when we meet. Revelations tells us that when all the battles have ceased and we're together with God for eternity, we will sing with all the nations and all the generations of believers in the most intense, most amazing worship that has ever been. Revelation 19 says we will sing hallelujah, hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. I think one of the reasons why singing is so powerful is in some way the eternity that God has put in all of our hearts is tasting just for a minute what we'll be doing for all eternity. It's tasting that victory. It's tasting that joy. This morning as I was standing over there, a lot of times I get to play, play uh, guitar with the band, but I was standing over here, and I don't know if it was just being there, but y'all sang loud today. <laughs> and it was awesome. And I know for many of you, you felt your heart well up. That's something that music can do that mere words so often can't. Singing has a way of making a pathway from here where we know things to be true and moves them to here that draw us into love and confidence and peace and hope and it just wells up in our hearts. Singing. We're going to sing in just a minute when, I'm, when I finish a song that... Uh, I asked Tyler to do, and it's uh, called I Raise a Hallelujah. And the lyrics say, I raise a hallelujah in the presence of my enemies. I raise a hallelujah louder than the unbelief. I raise a hallelujah. I love this one. My weapon is a melody. I raise a hallelujah. Heaven comes to fight for me. It says, I'm going to sing in the middle of the storm. Louder and louder, you're going to hear my praises roar. Up from the ashes, hope will arise. Death is defeated. The king is alive. This is how we fight our battles. Singing. One of the blessings that getting to play with the band is that I'm thinking about these songs so much more throughout the week. And I can't tell you since I started doing that a few months ago how much that has meant to my life of Walk with Christ, just rehearsing these songs in my head. So important. The last thing that I want to touch on real quickly, and I'm almost done, is that we have to still ride out to battle. Look where it says, Tomorrow, go down against them. You will not need to fight in this battle. 
Stand firm. Hold your position. See the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. Don't be afraid. Don't be dismayed. Go out. The Lord will be with you. The command is still to go out. To enter the battle. To engage the enemy. To stand firm. To hold your position. The command is to not waste our lives, but to engage in the battle. The command is not to just come on Sunday morning to church. The command is to go out and do battle every single day. The thing is about these attacks is we can think about them coming to us one time, maybe once a week, maybe once a month, or maybe it just comes every once in a while. No, these attacks come every day. These attacks come every day. If you want to live your life for Christ, if you want to make a difference, then attacks come every day. And we have to do these things every day. We have to remember that we're powerless. We have to remember God. We have to request His divine intervention. We have to raise a hallelujah every single day. But we have to go out into battle. Movie that uh, I, was, I was reminded myself of thinking about this idea of going out into battle is Braveheart. Um, I hope everybody in here has seen it. I told my wife this week that we needed to uh, make sure Avery Mallory get to see it. But there's a scene in that movie when the army of Scotland, small, weak, is there on the battlefield facing the huge, strong army of England. And they're out there, and the, the leaders of the, the army for Scotland go across, and they're going to make a deal, right? Because they don't think they can win, so they're going to make a deal, and they're going to make some compromises so that they don't have to fight. And William Wallace is there, and he's the, the hero of the, of the movie. And he says to the army, he says, I am William, I am William Wallace, and I see a whole army of my countrymen here in defiance of tyranny. You have come to fight as free men, and free men you are. What would you do with that, with, with that freedom? Will you fight? And a soldier says, fight? Against that? No. We'll run, and we'll live. William Wallace says, yeah, fight, and you may die. Run, and you'll live, at least for a while. And dying in your beds many years from now, would you be willing to trade all the days from this day to that for one chance, just one chance, to come back here and tell our enemies that they may take our lives, but they'll never take our freedom? The choice that we have is before us today. We're standing on the battlefield with a decision to make. Yeah, we can make compromises. We can hide. We cannot live too loud. We cannot make too big a difference. Or we can fight. But I ask myself, and I ask you, if you choose to make compromises, 
if you choose to live a life without any risks, would you be willing at the end of your life to trade all the days from that, that this day to that day to say to our enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil, that you can take my job, you can take my money, you can take my comfort, you can take my social standing, but you cannot take my freedom. You cannot take my joy. You cannot take my hope. You cannot take my peace because God has not only won this battle, he has won the war. For us, this is the choice. Will we step out? Will we fight? And as we fight, we'll raise a hallelujah. Because death is defeated. The king is alive. Let's pray. God, thank you so much. God, you call us to live a life of risk. You, live, you call us to live on mission for you. And God, there is danger. There is enemies. But God, you are more powerful and you have won the war already and you have promised that you will go with us and that as we face each and every battle, you will win those too. God, we ask you to give us hearts like Jehoshaphat that are courageous in the ways of the Lord. In your name we pray, amen.